Section 8 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Felicity Campbell. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1b, Section 8, Chapter 12, Part 8. The following are the most remarkable laws enacted during this reign. There had been great disputes between the civil and ecclesiastical courts concerning bastardy. The common law had deemed all those to be bastards who were born before wedlock. By the canon law they were legitimate, and, when any dispute of inheritance arose, it had formerly been usual for the civil courts to issue writs to the spiritual, directing them to inquire into the legitimacy of the person. The bishop always returned an answer agreeable to the canon law, though contrary to the municipal law of the kingdom. For this reason, the civil courts had changed the terms of their writ, and instead of requiring the spiritual courts to make inquisition concerning the legitimacy of the person, they only proposed the simple question of fact, whether he was born before or after wedlock. The prelates complained of this practice to the Parliament, assembled at Merton in the twentieth of this king, and desired that the municipal law might be rendered conformable to the canon, but received from all the nobility the memorable reply, Nolimus leges Angliae mutare, we will not change the laws of England. After the civil wars, the Parliament, summoned at Marlbridge, gave their approbation to most of the ordinances which had been established by the reforming barons, and which, though advantageous to the security of the people, had not received the sanction of a legal authority. Among other laws it was there enacted that all appeals from the courts of inferior lords should be carried directly to the king's courts, without passing through the courts of the lords immediately superior. It was ordained that money should bear no interest during the minority of the debtor. This law was reasonable, as the estates of minors were always in the hands of their lords, and the debtors could not pay interest where they had no revenue. The charter of King John had granted this indulgence. It was omitted in that of Henry the Third, for what reason is not known, but it was renewed by the statute of Marlbridge. Most of the other articles of the statute are calculated to restrain the oppressions of sheriffs and the violence and iniquities committed in distraining cattle and other goods. Cattle and the instruments of husbandry formed at that time the chief riches of the people. In the thirty-fifth year of this king, an assize was fixed of bread, the price of which was settled according to the different prices of corn, from one shilling a quarter to seven shillings and sixpence, money of that age. These great variations are alone a proof of bad tillage, yet did the prices often rise much higher than any taken notice of by the statute. The Chronicle of Dunstable tells us that in this reign wheat was once sold for a mark, nay, for a pound a quarter, that is, three pounds of our present money. The same law affords us a proof of the little communication between the parts of the kingdom from the very different prices which the same commodity bore at the same time, 
a brewer says the statute may sell two gallons of ale for a penny in cities and three or four gallons for the same price in the country at present such commodities by the great consumption of the people and the great stocks of the brewers are rather cheapest in cities the chronicle above mentioned observes that wheat one year was sold in many places for eight shillings a quarter but never rose in dunstable above a crown though commerce was still very low it seems rather to have increased since the conquest at least if we may judge of the increase of money by the price of corn the medium between the highest and lowest prices of wheat assigned by the statute is four shillings and threepence a quarter that is twelve shillings and ninepence of our present money that is near half of the middling price in our time yet the middling price of cattle so late as the reign of king richard we find to be above eight near ten times lower than the present is not this the true inference from comparing these facts that in all uncivilized nations cattle which propagate of themselves bear always a lower price than corn which requires more art and stock to render it plentiful than those nations are possessed of it is to be remarked that henry's assize of corn was copied from a preceding assize established by king john consequently the prices which we have here compared of corn and cattle may be looked on as contemporary and they were drawn not from one particular year but from an estimation of the middling prices for a series of years it is true the prices assigned by the assize of richard were meant as a standard for the accompts of sheriffs and as cheaters and as considerable profits were allowed to these ministers we may naturally suppose that the common value of cattle was somewhat higher yet still so great a difference between the prices of corn and cattle as that of four to one compared to the present rates affords important reflections concerning the very different state of industry and tillage in the two periods interest had in that age mounted to an enormous height as might be expected from the barbarism of the times and men's ignorance of commerce instances occur of fifty per cent paid for money there is an edict of philip augustus near this period limiting the jews in france to forty-eight per cent such profits tempted the jews to remain in the kingdom notwithstanding the grievous oppressions to which from the prevalent bigotry and rapine of the age they were continually exposed it is easy to imagine how precarious their state must have been under an indigent prince somewhat restrained in his tyranny over his native subjects but who possessed an unlimited authority over the jews the sole proprietors of money in the kingdom and hated on account of their riches their religion and their usury yet will our ideas scarcely come up to the extortions which in fact we find to have been practised upon them in the year twelve forty one twenty thousand marks were exacted from them two years after money was again extorted and one jew alone aaron of york was obliged to pay above four thousand marks in twelve fifty henry renewed his oppressions and the same aaron was condemned to pay him thirty thousand marks upon an accusation of forgery the high penalty imposed upon him and which it seems he was thought able to pay 
is rather a presumption of his innocence than of his guilt in twelve fifty five the king demanded eight thousand marks from the jews and threatened to hang them if they refused compliance they now lost all patience and desired leave to retire with their effects out of the kingdom but the king replied how can i remedy the oppressions you complain of i am myself a beggar i am spoiled i am stripped of all my revenues i owe above two hundred thousand marks and if i had said three hundred thousand i should not exceed the truth i am obliged to pay my son prince edward fifteen thousand marks a year i have not a farthing and i must have money from any hand from any quarter or by any means he then delivered over the jews to the earl of cornwall that those whom the one brother had flayed the other might embowel to make use of the words of the historian king john his father once demanded ten thousand marks from a jew of bristol and on his refusal ordered one of his teeth to be drawn every day till he should comply the jew lost seven teeth and then paid the sum required of him one talliage laid upon the jews in twelve forty three amounted to sixty thousand marks a sum equal to the whole yearly revenue of the crown to give a better pretence for extortions the improbable and absurd accusation which has been at different times advanced against that nation was revived in england that they had crucified a child in derision of the sufferings of christ eighteen of them were hanged at once for this crime though it is no wise credible that even the antipathy borne them by the christians and the oppressions under which they laboured would ever have pushed them to be guilty of that dangerous enormity but it is natural to imagine that a race exposed to such insults and indignities both from king and people and who had so uncertain an enjoyment of their riches would carry usury to the utmost extremity and by their great profits make themselves some compensation for their continual perils though these acts of violence against the jews proceeded much from bigotry they were still more derived from avidity and rapine so far from desiring in that age to convert them it was enacted by law in france that if any jew embraced christianity he forfeited all his goods without exception to the king or his superior lord these plunderers were careful lest the profits accruing from their dominion over that unhappy race should be diminished by their conversion commerce must be in a wretched condition where interest was so high and where the sole proprietors of money employed it in usury only and were exposed to such extortion and injustice but the bad police of the country was another obstacle to improvements and rendered all communication dangerous and all property precarious the chronicle of dunstable says that men were never secure in their houses and that whole villages were often plundered by bands of robbers though no civil wars at that time prevailed in the kingdom in twelve forty nine some years before the insurrection of the barons two merchants of brabant came to the king at winchester and told him that they had been spoiled of all their goods by certain robbers whom they knew because they saw their faces every day in his court that like practices prevailed all over england and travellers were continually exposed to the danger of being robbed bound wounded and murdered 
that these crimes escaped with impunity because the ministers of justice themselves were in a confederacy with the robbers, and that they, for their part, instead of bringing matters to a fruitless trial by law, were willing, though merchants, to decide their cause with the robbers by arms and a duel. The king, provoked at these abuses, ordered a jury to be enclosed and to try the robbers. The jury, though consisting of twelve men of property in Hampshire, were found to be also in a confederacy with the felons and acquitted them. Henry, in a rage, committed the jury to prison, threatened them with severe punishment, and ordered a new jury to be enclosed who, dreading the fate of their fellows, at last found a verdict against the criminals. Many of the king's own household were discovered to have participated in the guilt, and they said for their excuse that they received no wages from him, and were obliged to rob for a maintenance. Knights and esquires, says the dictum of Kenilworth, who were robbers, if they have no land, shall pay the half of their goods, and find sufficient security to keep henceforth the peace of the kingdom. Such were the manners of the times. One can the less repine during the prevalence of such manners at the frauds and forgeries of the clergy, as it gives less disturbance to society to take men's money from them with their own consent, though by deceits and lies, than to ravish it by open force and violence. During this reign, the papal power was at its summit, and was even beginning insensibly to decline by reason of the immeasurable avarice and extortions of the court of Rome, which disgusted the clergy as well as laity in every kingdom of Europe. England itself, though sunk in the deepest abyss of ignorance and superstition, had seriously entertained thoughts of shaking off the papal yoke, and the Roman pontiff was obliged to think of new expedients for riveting it faster upon the Christian world. For this purpose, Gregory the Ninth published his decretals, which are a collection of forgeries favourable to the court of Rome, and consist of the supposed decrees of popes in the first centuries. But these forgeries are so gross, and confound so palpably all language, history, chronology, and antiquities, matters more stubborn than any speculative truths whatsoever, that even that church, which is not startled at the most monstrous contradictions and absurdities, has been obliged to abandon them to the critics. But, in the dark period of the thirteenth century, they passed for undisputed and authentic, and men, entangled in the mazes of this false literature, joined to the philosophy equally false of the times, had nothing wherewithal to defend themselves but some small remains of common sense which passed for profaneness and impiety, and the indelible regard to self-interest, which, as it was the sole motive in the priests for framing these impostures, served also in some degree to protect the laity against them. Another expedient devised by the Church of Rome in this period for securing her power was the institution of new religious orders, chiefly the Dominicans and Franciscans, who proceeded with all the zeal and success that attend novelties, were better qualified to gain the populace than the old orders, now become rich and indolent, maintained a perpetual rivalship with each other in promoting their gainful superstitions, and acquired a great dominion over the minds and consequently over the purses of men, 
by pretending a desire of poverty and a contempt for riches. The quarrels which arose between these orders, lying still under the control of the sovereign pontiff, never disturbed the peace of the church, and served only as a spur to their industry in promoting the common cause, and though the Dominicans lost some popularity by their denial of the immaculate conception, a point in which they unwarily engaged too far to be able to recede with honour, they counterbalanced this disadvantage by acquiring more solid establishments, by gaining the confidence of kings and princes, and by exercising the jurisdiction assigned to them of ultimate judges and punishers of heresy. Thus the several orders of monks became a kind of regular troops or garrisons of the Romish church, and though the temporal interests of society, still more the cause of true piety, were hurt by their various devices to captivate the populace, they proved the chief supports of that mighty fabric of superstition, and, till the revival of true learning, secured it from any dangerous invasion. The trial by ordeal was abolished in this reign by order of council, a faint mark of improvement in the age. Henry granted a charter to the town of Newcastle, in which he gave the inhabitants a license to dig coal. This is the first mention of coal in England. We learn from Maddox that this king gave at one time one hundred shillings to Master Henry, his poet. Also the same year he orders this poet ten pounds. It appears from Selden that in the forty-seventh of this reign, a hundred and fifty temporal and fifty spiritual barons were summoned to perform the service due by their tenures. In the thirty-fifth of the subsequent reign, eighty-six temporal barons, twenty bishops and forty-eight abbots were summoned to a parliament convened at Carlisle. End of section 8, chapter 12, part 8. Recording by Felicity Campbell, book1forme.com, Whanganui. New Zealand.